running out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Buenos dias, mi gente. Welcome, everyone. Welcome and hello to the Tribe of Love listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Welcome, mi familia. Hello, WBAI listeners. My name is Daniel Alisea, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. I am the proud son of Manny and Alma. And I want to welcome you today to Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you live once again on WBAI listener-sponsored, locally-controlled, non-commercial Pacifica Radio in New York City on 99.5 FM. We are a Pacifica radio station. We're also being live-streamed via WBAI.org. And at Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools here and public education here in New York City on a state level and nationally. And if you'd like to listen again to today's broadcast or any other previous broadcast, you would like to share it with a friend or a loved one. It is also available for download as a podcast. You can go to the WBAI archives, uh, click on there, and you can also um, access the podcast there. But you can also add, uh, access the, the podcast on Spotify or Apple. Um, just type in Talk Out of School, and we, you should be able to find us. Today, we have a very special show as part of my role now as, as co-host of Talk Out of School. I, I wanted to start a series of episodes where we hear the voices of New York City educators. And we started last time we were together with uh, some ATR um, educators. And today, we have a very special guest with us. And, and part of this conversation, this ongoing conversation with educators, uh, we've invited Camille Eterno, and she is a leading educator in our New York City schools. She is also a parent of two New York City school children, and so I think her perspective is is valued, and, and we, we, we want to hear from her today. She is a highly effective school teacher who is also a respected unionist a leader in our educator ranks. Um, she is going to be part of something really special this spring, uh, what many of us are calling a historic moment. She'll be running for president of the United Federation of Teachers, the Teachers Union. Uh, she's running against Michael Mogru, the current president. And uh, we'll, we'll get to chat with her in just a moment. But before that, let's get to some news. And I, the really big news item this week was uh, the indoor mask mandate that has changed here in New York State. And I do want to read for you an excerpt from WABC, ABC7, New York online, an online article that they published this week. It's dated February 11, 2022, and it reads, uh, the indoor mask mandate in New York State expired on Thursday, but that doesn't mean New Yorkers can completely uh, go uh, mask-free. That means that Masks no longer have to be worn inside of hotels, stores, pharmacies, offices, and grocery stores, as long as the local government and business uh, say that it's okay. We want to make sure that every business knows this is your prerogative 
and individuals who want to continue wearing masks, continue wearing masks, said Governor Kathy Hochul. However, masks are still required at a number of places statewide, including our schools, public transportation, state health care settings, nursing homes, and correctional f- facilities, including homeless shelters as well. New York City will maintain its citywide mandates key to New York City that requires um, vaccination to enter restaurants, theaters, museums, gyms, and arenas. And if you're in New York City and unvaccinated, the requirement remains that you must always be masked in public settings. And that said, the New York City Department of Education continues its established mask requirements um, that they have planned for the current school year, and that remains in effect. The governor said that the state's children going on a week-long break starting February 21st. Um, We'll get some more news after that break. She wants to make sure kids remain safe. She wants kids to be provided at-home COVID tests before going back to school, and then again three days later after this midwinter break. Governor Hochul said that she would reassess the state mask mandate for schools for the first week of March. The state plans to look at the positivity rate in schools and within the state, including hospital admissions. UFT President Michael Mogru released the following statement. We are all excited about the possibility of lifting these restrictions, but Governor Hochul's thoughtful and prudent approach is the right one. And I want to piggyback on that and say we need to close out the school year and err on the side of caution. There um way too many waves in this pandemic to be risking um, at any moment some of the intergenerational families uh, in our New York City schools. It isn't just about those that attend schools, but it's also about those that our children have to go back home to, the elderly, the medically fragile. We have those populations also in our school buildings and uh, watching how these waves have worked in the last two years, I don't think um, we're ready. And so that's my opinion, but I'm going to ask Camille in a moment to come on and maybe she can share uh, if we get to that part of our, our, our planned programming for today, her thought on mandates. Um, I want to introduce to you Camille Eterno. She has been an English teacher in New York since 1996. She has 18 years of experience as both a chapter leader in her school and a UFT delegate. As the chapter leader at the Queens Gateway to Health Sciences, Camille won grievances that even the UFT leadership said were not winnable. She helped organize her chapter into an active force that was a major presence at many union rallies. As a leader of the Independent Community of Educators, or ICE, Camille was instrumental in the nearly successful battle against the Give Back Laden 2005 contract that robbed UFT members of so many of their hard-earned rights. She is currently serving as a delegate from Veritas Academy in Queens. She also mentors a, uh, new teachers and serves on the UFT chapter committee at her school. Camille has recently been featured on CNN and ABC World News Tonight, promoting safer working conditions for teachers and students during the pandemic. And again, she is also the mother of two New York City public school students. Welcome, Camille Eternal. And I hear that you're also running for UFT president. 
Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on, Dan. It is my pleasure to be here. I just wanted to take a little bit of time to just introduce myself. I came here as a young child from Jamaica, the West Indies in the Caribbean. So uh, I came in and attended public schools here in New York City. I later was fortunate to attend a New York University where I did my undergraduate and graduate studies in ELA. After that, I was able to have some experience working in Hunter College High School, where I did internships with um, 11th and 12th graders. And upon graduating, I was able to work in a middle school. So I do understand what it's like to work in a middle school. I later on took on jobs that has been in high schools because I felt a little more comfortable with the older population. And I recognized too how important it is for students at all levels to have great teachers in their classrooms. As a result, I also was able to motivate the chapter not only to be strong trade unionist and to resist unnecessary or even unwarranted attacks and to be focused on educating our kids to the best of our abilities. The kids are important to us and that's why we are in this business. Later on during my career, I was under attack when new management came in and we waged war in one of the high schools that I was in. And later on, I left that school. So I was also put into the ATR pool. When I was put in the absent teacher reserve pool, from there, I was able to land a job for a year as a 12th grade teacher in the High School of American Studies in the Bronx. This is one of the specialized high schools by Lehman College. And in that high school, I was fortunate enough to work with the principal, Alessandra Wise, and his chapter leader, Jonathan Hallaby. And in that school, I saw that efforts were made to educate all students to the best of their abilities. Additionally, one of the things that came to the forefront was that the students in that, in that particular school were talking about the need for more diversity. And so with the leadership of Principal Wise and Chapter Leader Hallaby, students sought out a program that they used after school to help further the knowledge and understanding of various skill sets. So students from the local neighborhood in the Bronx were able to come in and get tutored. And also they set up a summer program so that if the students didn't quite necessarily meet the threshold to get into the specialized high school, they would then work with them to ensure that they could successfully enter that particular high school and succeed. So I bring all of these up to say that I've been in schools with students with all abilities. And because of those experiences, I understand the value of fighting for the dignity and respect of all UFTers in our school, because the better we're treated, the easier it is for us to give it our awe and educate our students to the best of our abilities because the working conditions of the teachers and, and 
other staffers definitely have an impact on the students' lives too. So thanks for that introduction, Dan. Thank you, Camille, for being with us today. And I, I, I do want our listeners to definitely tune in to some of the things that you're saying, because I, I know that you bring with you a wealth of experience as a unionist, but also as an educator, a highly qualified educator, and a New York City parent. So let's, let's start off with a, a, just the, really the last two years. This pandemic has brought to the forefront a lot of issues. Your thoughts first as a parent of New York City school children, but also as, as an educator, how, what would you say about the DOE's response to the pandemic? And then when you're that, done with that, um, also the UFT, the teachers union's response to the pandemic, your thoughts on that as a parent and educator? I lead right now with my hat as a parent. As a parent, I was nervous about sending my my two children who are in second grade currently and seventh grade. I was nervous because I was afraid of them getting sick and bringing home the COVID virus to our homes. At the time, I had an elderly grandmother who unfortunately has perished to the COVID virus. And so I understood the real danger that COVID presented. So I understood more importantly, its impact on students going home and bringing in this virus into homes that are sometimes not large enough to give them individual spaces to self-isolate. So on that basis, I completely understood the need to go remote and to give our students an opportunity to continue the learning process. Was that the most ideal way to educate our students? Absolutely not. I also recognize how important it is for students to be in our buildings actually learning. I saw that with my own two kids. Kara, who is older, took immediately to the the remote learning. Matthew, who was younger and at the time in the first grade, needed a little bit of an adjustment because Matthew is usually in the building interacting with his friends. So now he was home and the ability to socialize with his friends was a little harder. And at the younger age group, that became a little more of a challenge for him. And so one of the things we tried to do with our local neighborhood students, the ones that were closest was to do outdoor spaces in, in the local parks, and that became tricky. So I totally understand why parents would be upset when the kids are not in the school, but that was the safest. Now, I also recognize that going, going back to school this September, students came to us with gaps in their learning. And with the gaps in the learning, we have to try to address them as best as possible. And so the DOE, along with President Malgru, agreed to more testing. So right now, we have done several assessments, even in my own school. And as a result, we're able to see some of the weaknesses or gaps in the learning that the students possess. The challenge now is now that we've got tons of data 
from um, an enormous amount of tests that we've done. What do we now do with this data? And so it's important for us to be given the opportunity and the resources to address some of these gaps in the learning that we're seeing. But instead of the DOE allowing us more opportunities to address these gaps, we're now being asked to do more and more tests. So my biggest concern is, why are we continuing with more and more tests? We have data, now give us the chance to remedy some of these inadequacies. And so given the opportunity, I would like to be able to do more to help our kids who I've seen right now, even in the high school, who are reading on an elementary grade level. So yes, I'm seeing high schoolers reading on a third through sixth grade level. Yes, some of our high schoolers are in the special ed department, some are in our L department, but some are in the general population and they are not where they need to be. So give us the opportunity with the resources to actually remedy or fix some of these problems. And that's not happening in real time. Yeah, I call it death by, by assessment. Uh, really, I, I feel like we, we, are, we are assessing, but we are not putting the tools and the resources, as you said. We've, we need more staff. We need more counselors. And uh, the, the fixes seem to just be assessments. Your thoughts of how the teachers' union has responded to some of the um, the more pressing issues in the in the in the last uh, few, at least in this last school year with the pandemic. Well, I am thinking about our own president of the UFT, Michael Mulgrew, and that he has failed, and because of that, I can't trust him to do a good job if he's put back into office. I also recognize that in March of 2020, when we went to that remote option, that a lot of teachers were put together in a small, in one small space. I'm thinking about even in my own building that week when the kids were home and I saw friends of mine, many of whom were very, very sick. And so even that week of March 2020 should have been the opportunity since we were doing the Google Classroom to give us the opportunity to go home and work on our computers and work with our co-teachers and, and fellow um, UFTers in the building. We didn't all need to show up. That's why so many people got sick. And I know that probably part of the reason why we lost some people who perished to the disease. I also want to add that the Los Angeles Teachers Union has an opportunity, had an opportunity to go back to negotiating table and were able to get a remote option that was built in when the coronavirus was raging out of control. And I believe that had we used those opportunities as Michael Mulgrew, as our leader, to at least offer a remote option when we first came back 
in September and saw that it was raging out of control, we would have probably had fewer people stricken with the disease. And I'm still getting stories of people who are testing positive this week, more students and teachers. Yes, I know it's, uh, the science is saying that the numbers are going up, but people are still testing positive. And I felt that if we had not all continued to be in classrooms, I can speak for myself, in the 30s, with myself as a general ed teacher and a special, uh, special ed teacher, and an English language learner teacher. So you're looking at 32 plus 335 bodies, and this is high school, and small rooms, some of this could have been avoided. And so I think the DOE and the leadership under Michael Mulgrew have failed us. And then, then there's other concerns. Um, I think of long COVID and something that we still aren't having a really good conversation about. Um, that many teachers and educators and school staff and students and their families um, are going to be dealing with long COVID for, for a generation. You're talking about the onset of some new neurological, immunological, cardiovascular and systemic um, conditions that we are still learning about with COVID. I, I want to move forward here because what I'm hearing is that the last two years, in, in your opinion, have really brought to, to, to bear some of the um, problems that have always existed in New York City schools. Um, I, I want to I talk about some of the issues that many in New York City education are talking about, educators, parents, families. And just recently, we saw a push, um, and I know Lainey, this is one of her, her, her bigger issues, smaller class size without a doubt, is one of the bigger issues among families. Every time there's surveys out there, they to them, that's one of the, if not the most important issue, it, it ranks in the top. For educators, it's it's ranked as one of the bigger issues. And then we saw that uh, there was an attempt to ch change the health code, um, and, uh, some legislation that went to city council. It was buried by the the speaker and the mayor, uh, Mayor de Blasio, and it did not pass. The, the, the union also tried to push for it, um, I might say tepidly, but it, it, they're, they're, it, it failed. So your thoughts on smaller class size, um, Camille, um, as a parent and as a New York City educator? As a parent, I know the value of having my kids sit in a smaller class because already I recognize that the teacher will have fewer bodies to walk around and interact with. And the fewer bodies that the teacher has, the more individualized attention st students can get. And the better it will be for those students and their ability to grasp the concepts that are being taught on any given day. As an educator, I recognize that when I taught, for example, AP Literature and Composition in the 12th grade, and I had 25 students, it was a lot easier for me to get around to the 25 and to make sure that they were understanding the different concepts. And most importantly, when it came time to grading or assessing their essays, I had more time to respond more extensively and actually follow up with what I call writer's clinic. I was able to sit in the classroom 
and pull students aside and offer one-on-one -on -one assistance, which then resulted in them doing better on the advanced placement exam. That's just one example. The other reality is that when I have fewer students, I can get better results overall so that their scholarship report with moving from one grade level to the next gets better. I currently have students who are in the integrated co-teaching model called ICT, and I also have students who are in the L population. I am fortunate that I am also able to converse with my students in Spanish and in French. And so sometimes if they're not understanding, I can say to them, can you please explain to me what's going on in your whether Spanish or French, because those are the languages I'm comfortable with, and get a better understanding so the communication gets easier. Now, if I have, again, larger class sizes, it's harder for me to get around to every kid and to interact with him or her. And so it's critical that we start thinking seriously about reducing class sizes and actually put, now would be the time to put it into negotiations for the next contract. We're always saying we want smaller class sizes, but now would be a good time to actually do something about it. I, I, my understanding that there hasn't been a change on the caps inside of the contract in, in over 50 years. And uh, we saw the delegate assembly in November finally say, you know, the, the voice of, the chapter leaders and delegates at the at, at the United Federation of Teachers uh, told leadership that we want to see it as a priority in, in our contract. Your thoughts on prioritizing that in our contract? I say when we put it in our contract, it must be in our top five of demands because contracts, if we, I mean, put putting class, lowering of class size in the contract is then becomes an enforceable issue. I believe also that money's there. Okay, we had gotten money from CFE. And why can't we put that money into reducing class sizes, making that one of our priority? We're already saying that the pandemic has hurt us and hurt our kids. There's no better time to reduce class sizes. Currently, we have 32 in elementary schools, 33 in middle schools, 34 in high school, if not now, when? Absolutely. Um, also coming up in June is the expiration of mayoral control of our city schools. And for those who, who know a little bit about mayoral control, um, for many years, schools were governed by community school boards. And there were some issues with that. There was some corruption with that. Um, and there are some myths that also come along with that. Um, but in 2002, Mayor Bloomberg, um, after many years, uh, Giuliani, who had also tried to, to gain control of, of our city schools as, as mayor, um, Bloomberg was able to make that, that happen. And in some ways, with the consent of, of the teachers union, um, it was the same year that a contract was offered, I believe. And in 2002, um, we signed off on it, and we've seen that in the last 20 years, um, what mayoral control has wrought on our New York City schools. Some will say 
um, that somehow it, it keeps one person accountable. But in, in June, we get the opportunity to change the way we do things. And it's, it's, it's not a binary option. It's not go back to the school boards. I, I know that there have been many different models put out there, but your thoughts on what we should be doing as parents and families in New York City um, are what, what, what should the model be for um, mayoral control? Do we end it? Do we, do we limit it? Your thoughts on that and also as an educator. I definitely think we should end mayoral control. And I think we should end it because why should we give one person the opportunity to make the decision that affects the lives of so many? The reality is when I think about school districts across this country, they're being run by school boards and these school boards are determined by the votes of people who live in those communities, not by some one person who has the ultimate say. We've seen already the effects, albeit the negative effects of mayor control under former mayor Michael Bloomberg. When he was in control, one of the first things that he did, the schools that he considered that were ineffective, he went around and closed these schools. Now, in closing some of these large schools that he says were failing and were not meeting the requirements, and he then formed smaller schools, and some of these same small schools were turning around and failing. So my concern is not to give the mayor back this control. And so I would rather go to a school board model in which people who live in the community have a say in what goes on in our schools through voting and not just through giving up control to our mayor. We've seen already that it has not worked. Why are we going to continue to do something that is failing and hurting our kids? It doesn't make any sense at this juncture to now give this new mayor Mayor Eric Adams, control of our schools. Yeah, and I, I see that there's been some talk about how, how we can fix that. And, and a lot of it has to do with the, 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 um, what the PEP or the Panel for Educa Educational Policy would look like. Um, it is what we consider the school board here in New York City. Um, the name was changed during the, the Bloomberg years. But one of the one of the solutions I've seen a, a band aid I, I would call it is to uh, maybe change maybe two seats on that PEP. Um, I think the UFT is offering um, or a remedy of of two parents uh, chosen by our CECs um, as the remedy to uh, fixing or at least limiting the control of the mayor. Your thoughts on that? Your thoughts on? what that says to communities, especially communities of color. What, what that says to community of color is that you're putting a Band-Aid, like you said, Dan, on this situation. Because from looking at the numbers, the mayor is still going to be in control if we're doing that Band-Aid. And that's not what we need. We need 
to have the opportunity to get parents involved, to get the communities involved and take the power out of the hands of the mayor. You are listening to WBAI on 99.5. We are locally sponsored and free speech radio. Um, I'm here today with Camille Eterno. She is a New York City educator. She is a New York City parent. She is also running against the the present um, president of the United Federation of Teachers, Michael Mogru. She is part of a coalition slate called United for Change. And uh, there is, for, for those that don't understand the the politics within unions. Um, they, they, within unions, there's also political parties. And, and one of the things that uh, folks may not know about the United Federation of Teachers is that there's only been one political party that's ever been in control. Um, there's only been one caucus called Unity that's been in charge of um, the leadership of not just the United Federation of Teachers, but that has translated to also on the New York State level and also the American Federation of Teachers, which is one of the two leading national unions in the United States. And so, um, Camille, you, you, you've got a tall order here. And, and those that are that are running on this United for Change slate, you've got a, a pretty tall order. And uh, I know that one of the things that is coming up now also is our teachers union um, contract with the city is about to expire in September. And so, your thoughts, uh, Camille, on what those priorities should be for, for teachers, again, knowing that our conditions as teachers um, affect the learning conditions of our students in our classrooms, what should be the top priorities for, for our contract? The top priorities for our contract, again, I believe it should be putting in smaller class size in our contract, making that an, an issue for negotiation. I believe saying no to mayoral control is also something that we should be fighting against. Chicago just changed to an elected school board. We are a very large minority um, school district, and we should not have the mayor in control. We are also very concerned about our health care. We already saw what happened to our retirees and because of that, I know that with our health cares on the line now as active workers, I recognize there's also an opportunity to ask us for more out-of-pocket and to give us fewer benefits. So I recognize we also have to fight for our health care. I also understand that for the contract, no more givebacks. We are tired of watching our rights that have been long fought for being reversed. I've been in situations where abusive principles have made our lives total nightmares where you don't even wanna go into those work sites. So I believe one of the things we have to do is to fight back against the control that some of the principles have had and the abuse that they've levied onto our members. We also need to fight for better working conditions in our schools. And we also need to get pay raises that keep up with inflation. I believe it's currently at 7%. Too often, 
we are given raises that do not keep up with that. And so if we really, yes, we are the United Federation of Teachers. We have to get back to doing some of these things and allowing our members to see trade unionism at work where they too can feel empowered so we can stand up together as a unified force to fight back the attacks. There are some who say that, that nothing's going to change. Um, that even if you were elected in, and that, like I said, that hasn't happened in 60 years or in the existence of the United Federation of Teachers. Some would say that um, everything is just going to remain. The machine is there. Um, a Camille Eternal will be the same as Michael Mogrew and the present leadership. What makes you different? What would make this new caucus, United for Change, different? What will make us different? One of the first difference is that we are still working educators. We're members of the rank and file. Too often we've seen uh, Michael Mulgrew, who has not been in the trenches for as long as many of us have been. So we understand what it's like to work in schools where you don't have resources, where you are fighting to advocate for kids. I'm learning more and more about our population, even in my own school, that have housing insecurity and food insecurity. So I recognize that we are going to set ourselves apart by choosing to empower our members. And how do we empower our members? Making sure everyone knows what his or her or their rights are in our schools. Making sure that people understand that we are the United Federation of Teachers and that if there is a problem in a particular school, we are going into those schools to stand tall and to fight with those members. Too often, one of the reasons why people don't fight back is they feel like if they're fighting, they're doing it alone. And now we want to show them you have the support of the United Federation of Teacher. So for the first couple of years when the UFT started, I remember by looking up Charles Kogan and the early Shanker years, people felt empowered. So whenever their rights were being trampled on, they had the backing of the United Federation of Teachers. Secondly, I know that President Michael Mulgrew now says that there is a 500-person negotiating committee, all top-down confidentiality involving the members. I believe it's very important for us to understand that when we have a contract negotiation at hand, that the member, the information that we're bringing to the negotiation table must come from the ranking file. It's the members that make the union and it's not the top-down mentality that Michael Mulgrew and the Unity Party has used for years he believes that he's the manager and he's simply managing all of us. That would change because instead of us working 
the status quo will have to change because we believe to take back this union. It is the membership that's going to take it back. And we have to be member driven. No longer the management style of this is how I'm going to manage it. This is how we need to collectively work together where people can stand tall and be proud to be a member of the United Federation of Teachers again. I, I know I that one. I'm sorry. I have one example of that. Okay. I have a story of a queen school in which 20 teachers came together and filed a grievance because they were not being paid properly for their sixth period class. Now, currently they're given a coverage rate, which amounts to a little over 3000 but gets doubled if they're paid correctly, which is the sixth period. For years, people in that school has been told, this is that good that it gets. But then they have now a new chapter leader. And this new chapter leader has gotten to all those teachers and listened to them. And based on these conversations, they are now collectively 20 teachers standing up to management in that school and this is proof that when you work with the members, we can stand together and we can make a difference in people's lives for the better. I also know that the coalition that's ru- running for, for United for Change is a very diverse group. Um, it consists of caucuses and groups and individuals that have, um, for many years, haven't worked together, but for, for this election, they have. Um, your thoughts or, or, or anything that you would like to add about this coalition called United for Change uh, that you are running for? I'm running for UFC, United for Change. We're consisting of ICE, Independent Community of Educators. We have more. We have Solidarity. We have New Action. And we understand that for years we have worked independently. Now we're coming together as a united body to try to take over the union. We are not happy with the way Michael Mulgrew and the Unity Party has been running the union. We saw firsthand and COVID exposed a lot of that. We were not able to grieve letters in the file because during COVID, President Malgu said, we're not going to do that at this time. While at the same time, people were still being attacked in schools. I also recognize that because we're working together, there is definitely strength in numbers and we are collectively using our resources across the city to take back our union. Michael Mulgrew, you are on notice that your leadership has failed the United Federation of Teachers members and you're currently failing the students in New York City public schools and we need to take back our union. As part of that, I understand there's a group of 
uh, called Retiree um, Advocate that is also part of the United for Change Coalition. And they have brought to bear some some issues dealing with certain changes that were made to retiree health care. Um, I know that you touched a little bit about health care, um, give backs. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about um, what's going on with this privatization plan that is affecting all municipal workers, um, not just uh, union uh, members in, within the UFT, but all unions uh, through the MLC? Y- your, your thoughts, I know that you marched in, in, in June or July alongside of many of our retirees uh, citywide. Um, your thoughts on those givebacks, your thoughts on possible in-service givebacks. Healthcare is a big issue, especially now with long COVID. Absolutely. I was able to march in June side by side with my brothers and sisters of the retiree advocates. And they're also part of the United for Change Coalition. And I got to learn firsthand about the impact of the givebacks. Now that there's been privatization with Medicare, our retirees are now asked to pay as single payers 192 and as a couple, that times two, which approximately is $400. This used to be free, F-R-E-E. So now they're being asked to pay that money for something. If they that, want to keep their existing coverage. If they want to keep their existing coverage. Now, there is also a stipulation that in the, in the past, people were able to go to local specialists if they felt that was needed. Now we have a gatekeeper, which means they're going to have to go through their primary care physician first before they can be referred. That means there's no guarantee that people are going to be able to see the specialists anymore because now they're going to have to get the okay from not only the primary care physician who is going to put that request in, but the insurance company has to say it's okay. And that's a problem for people who have underlying conditions that are chronic that requires the need to see specialists at different times. I can tell you right now, I have listened to my own mother who was confused by this whole process. She wasn't sure what she should do at this time. And so I've had many conversations trying to explain to her that the vast majority of it consists of people, you either stay on Emblem Care, Emblem Health, and so for the people who had, uh, I know years ago in the olden days, it used to be HIP, H-I-P, and then the people who had, um, geez, I forgot the, some of the other names. They're escaping me now. But for too often, some people have said that they did not like the process of always having to go through a physician who had to make the recommendations before they could see a specialist. So now that's one of their contentions. They now have a gatekeeper and they're not sure that this is going to be in their best interest because the insurance companies are in the business of making a profit on the backs of people who have toiled through blood, sweat and tears. And at this stage in their lives, when they need the assistance the most with their health care, 
this is like a slap in the face for them. And I believe it has implication for people like me who are still working because the more give backs to healthcare and the more privatization gets their hands in the healthcare system, the fewer the benefits and the harder it is going to be for us to see a specialist as needed because we're going to be at the mercy of these insurance companies to determine who gets to see whom and at what time because they're always going to be watching the cost. They're in this for profit. So that could be potentially not only problematic, but dangerous for people who might be in need of assistance ASAP. Talking about life-threatening um, conditions, as 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 many of us have have experienced um, with with our elderly um, parents as well. It, it, it's um, I, I I I'm with you on this one. I feel like here are folks that have poured their lives as civil servants into the city. And they are now put in a very precarious situation. There have been a lot of promises made. I know that all this kind of goes back to some some contracts that were, were made early on in 2014 and, and some monies that were spent in, in what they call the stabilization fund, a fund that is not um, that is not um, have a lot of oversight. Uh, it's a, a fund that, that pretty much uh, is a fund that the unions and the city kind of can have free reign over. And I know that over a billion dollars was given uh, for contract raisers for particularly teachers in 2014. But over time, that stabilization fund has depleted. And to see that we are essentially making a trade-off here for some raises that that, uh, that Bloomberg refused to give us um, – and some retro monies that were promised, and we even saw some some problems there. But just to see that we are here in 2022, um, possibly mortgaging the health and the lives of our retirees who have given their lives to the city, um, and that we as a union have been on the lead of this. Um, uh, some of the other unions like the PSC, I know that some of the um, police unions also have fought against this retiree change to me is unconscionable. And I, I'm with you on this one, um, Camille. We are coming close to uh, the end of our time, but I do have a couple of more uh, questions for you. I know that one of the bigger issues in our in our school system and having taught here in the city first and then moved to a right-to-work state um, in, in Texas and then moving back to New York City as a New York City educator. Um, to me, it's still mind-boggling that in 2022, one of the most segregated school systems in the United States is here in New York City. Uh, some of that, some folks say, are tied to um, some of the specialized high school admission tests and the way that we kind of um, do um, – our school system, just as far as socioeconomically, the way that we have our neighborhoods in, in um, set up, your thoughts on some of the school segregation that we are seeing still in New York City schools and how that ties perhaps to, to specialized high schools having, I know that you've taught in one and you, and you referenced one before. I can tell you first and foremost that um I have relatives who teach in schools throughout the United Kingdom, 
specifically in England and in Wales. And when they visited my local high school that I taught in, they were appalled when they looked at the population and their first response is, that's racism. How is this possible that in America that they're allowing racism to continue? Wasn't there a civil rights movement? Wasn't there a fight to integrate the schools? We have been set back. How could people sit comfortably back and watch racism occur in front of their faces? How are we okay with a system that continues to promote this? This was their race, their first response. And I said to them, based on the different districting guidelines, this is how it is allowed the lack of segregation to occur in New York City schools. That's the first issue. Another issue that unfortunately resulted in segregation again is the specialized high school exam, which allows students who um, score a certain amount on these exams to get into these specialized high schools. Having been in the specialized high schools, I can tell you that there is not a lot of diversity, but I also recognize that parents have spent a tremendous amount of time, energy, and money preparing their children for these exams. So I understand why parents who are putting in this effort would be upset. I also recognize that on the other hand, there are parents who cannot afford to put this time and effort and money into preparing their children to also get into these schools. So for that reason alone, some of these children in the poorer areas will never stand a chance. And so the solution to that is to make sure that resources are being put into all schools so that everyone has an opportunity to not only take those exams, but to also score well enough so that they too can have an opportunity and a seat in some of these places. I know as a parent that if I wanted my kids to go to the specialized high school, I would have to invest the time and the money also to shore up their skills. But I believe it's more important for us to invest in all of our schools so that all of our students in New York City public schools can have an opportunity to excel and to also get into some of these top colleges and universities. Thank you so much, Camille, for your time today. Uh, for those that want more information about Camille, you can uh, see her bio. It's over at unitedforchange.vote. You can also find um, her and the United for Change platform there that is um, running against uh, the current leadership in the United for Federation for Teachers for the sake of transparency. 
I am also running for a um, executive board seat as a middle school school teacher. I want to thank all of you that listened today. I want to thank you so much, familia, for joining me today on Talk Out of School. This is Daniel Alisea. I am one of the co-hosts of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, our Talk Out of School um, show is also available as a podcast if you missed any part of today's broadcast. If you hear it, uh, if you'd like to hear it, just um, go to Apple Podcasts, type in Talk Out of School, and please leave us a review. And also please consider becoming a member of WBAI as a special supporter of the show. You can go to WBAI.org and just type in the, the, um, the donate button. And you can also make a donation in name of Talk Out of School. Or you can also call this number. The number is 212-209-2950 to make a donation. Again, the number is 212 212- 209-2950. Again, I want to thank you so much, Camille, for joining us today. This conversation of New York City educators is going to continue here on Talk Out of School. Again, we do need your support, listeners, to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. For over 60 years, WBAI has been a city on the hill. Help us continue with our quality radio programming. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, please be safe. Please be careful. And once again, Tribe of Love, keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good day. Wait, don't-